Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. It was a bitterly cold Saturday night when people across Alberta heard this. When I heard the alert, I was surprised that it was a power alert. It was, in fact, an emergency warning that the province's electricity grid was on the brink. I was worried after I received the text message. And I remember going around the house trying to turn off whatever I could. People in Alberta, including those folks on the streets of Calgary, were urged to shut off their lights, unplug their cars, and turn off their appliances or risk rolling blackouts. It worked. People cooperated, but... For about two days after the alert, I was on high alert myself. You know, we're going to have minus 35 weather again, and yeah, I'm worried about getting another alert then. It's definitely uh, bringing things right up to the forefront about what's next, and especially how to handle uh, any future problems, because climate change is obviously here, and we're getting these extreme temperatures. I think uh, this might have been a wake-up call to look at things from all points of view. And what happened in Alberta got all of Canada talking and politicians pointing fingers about how to keep the lights and the heat on when temperatures get cold, like minus 50 degrees cold. They need to understand that their uh, clean electricity regulations don't take into account the reality that we in a northern climate face. And with her power on and the alert ended, one listener had a question for us. All right then, here we go. <clears throat> Hi, this is Aurora Hamilton from Calgary. It's minus 34 this morning. We're in day six and counting for the polar vortex currently covering Alberta. I'm wondering if there'll be a show on how EVs, heat pumps, and wind and solar energy sources are performing under these conditions. We have limited hydroelectric here in Alberta, and I just don't think that the infrastructure and tech advances are anywhere close to replacing oil and natural gas energy sources. Please help me see that solutions are forthcoming soon. Okay, Aurora, we are going to do our level best to give you an answer. I'm Laura Lynch, and this is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. On today's show... From electric vehicles to heat pumps to renewable power, we'll spend the whole hour focused on green energy and just how it stacks up against a Canadian winter. All right, let's return to that cold Alberta night. So on Saturday the 13th, I was driving back from Calgary, actually, with my husband. We were running some errands in the city, and we got back to our house in Cochrane, put our toddler to bed, and got ready to turn on the TV and, you know, relax and hang out for the night. And then we checked our phones and saw that we had this grid alert asking everybody to shut everything down and stop their electricity use. It may be a little cynical, but I thought this is kind of a, a bit of a Hail Mary, hey? Like, 
is this too little too late? But <laughs> I am happy to be wrong that it was it was not too little too late. It was a very impressive and effective response that they got. So what did you do? Well, instead of watching TV, we turned everything off, which was great anyway because our toddler was in bed, so we didn't need anything on for for her anyway. And then we uh, just sat in the dark and uh, talked. It was kind of a nice opportunity to connect with my husband instead of staring at a screen, honestly. So you owe the province and the utility regulator a favor. But before we, get, <laughs> before we get too much further, I just want to back up for a second and get you to introduce yourself for our listeners. Oh, absolutely. My name is Grace Brown. I live in Cochrane, Alberta, and I am a senior analyst on the Pembina Institute's electricity team. So, Grace, now that everybody knows who you are and what you went through, let's tackle the question of electricity in cold weather. What do we know so far about why power was about to go off, why there was about to be a shutdown in Alberta on January the 13th? Well, there were several things that came together to result in this grid alert. One, it was really cold. The extreme cold temperatures meant that there was an increase in energy demand with, you know, people just trying to heat their homes and do what they needed to do to manage the cold. There also was low energy output from renewable energy sources. And notably, there also were two unplanned outages at two of our gas plants. And there was also one other gas plant that was down for scheduled maintenance all at that same time. So with all of these things together, that resulted in this grid alert. Would it be fair to say that Alberta relies on natural gas to to power a lot of its electricity? Yeah, we definitely do. And we have a decent grid mix in Alberta. However, most of our grid is powered by natural gas. I mentioned earlier that renewables, wind and solar, were producing a low amount of power, but that was forecasted. The Alberta Electric System Operator is in charge of managing and forecasting our power flows. So they're very good at that. And they know when to expect to have more power from wind and solar, and they plan accordingly. What was the real surprise here was that when they planned accordingly to have more power coming from gas at this time, that it wasn't available when it was needed. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I want to bring in another aspect of your life. You're from Texas. And I think a lot of people might remember that almost three years ago, the power grid went down there in an extreme cold snap there, made a lot of headlines. When you got the grid warning in Calgary, were, were there any sort of things that it brought up for you or connections that you drew to what happened in Texas? Definitely. Yeah. And I have to say, I'm so relieved that it didn't go for us the way that it went for Texas in 2021. That was I mean, that was really serious. It was deadly, actually, when people weren't, you know, they, they died from the cold or they died from carbon monoxide because they were trying to heat their homes in unsafe ways. But, but in Calgary or in Alberta, I guess you were thinking, OK, this can't be that bad because it's Alberta. I feel like in Alberta, we know how to plan for the cold a lot better. <laughs> you think so. But I'm just wondering, after the alert went out, there were some provincial politicians who quickly criticized the federal laws that are that are on board to green Canada's power supply. I just want you to listen to Alberta's Utilities Minister Nathan Newdorf. This is him speaking the next day. We're not blaming renewables. We're just realizing there's a limitation to what they can do. 
solar cannot generate it that night, which is earlier in the winter. And if there is no wind, like there wasn't yesterday, we can't generate wind either. Now, I know you've referred to this already, but what do you make of the minister's assessment? Well, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that the sun isn't shining all the time and the wind isn't always blowing. What's really great is that the system operator here is able to forecast those times. Like I mentioned earlier, they go through these very intense and careful planning processes that allow them to maximize the value of wind and solar when it's available and also plan for times when it's not going to be as available. They're also able to use other power reserves later when they need to. And I think that actually that this focus on on our energy mix is good. We do need a healthy, diverse mix of energy assets to ensure our grid reliability. Wind and solar are currently the cheapest forms of power available to us. I think that we would be smart to utilize first the cheapest sources of power that we can. So I don't see a reason not to do that. And I I think that in a renewables-based low-carbon grid, there is still going to be a role for gas plants with carbon capture, and a diversity of assets is really the most important thing. Grace, we started our show today with an email from our listener, Aurora, in Calgary, and she's asking us about using EVs, heat pumps, and green power sources when it's really cold out. And she wants to know about solutions that can replace oil and gas heating. And I'm wondering, Grace, can you help Aurora see the solutions here? Yeah, I think that reliability and affordability are just always the concerns that are top of mind for Albertans, or probably everybody who uses electricity. I think that the amount of thought that we want to put into our electricity system is, I'm going to flick this switch, and then my power is going to turn on. And we like that. Like that's, And I think that it's great that our system operator has been able to provide us with that. I think, though, that we know that the grid is changing. There are a lot of things that are different now than it used to be. It's not just one-way power flows that we're looking at where you have your power coming from one power plant and then it goes to your house and that's the end of it. We have a lot of different ways of using power. We can put solar panels on our home and send power back to the grid when it needs it, which is pretty cool. There's been a lot of focus on electric vehicles and their influence on the grid. I am a little mystified by that because I think that Alberta has about 9,000 to 10,000, so under 10,000 electric vehicles in the entire province. So even if they were all charging at the same time at max capacity, that would not be an enormous power draw on the grid right now. So I think that when we're looking at managing our loads, maybe we should be looking at the entire province of Alberta, looking at our block heaters and not plugging those all in at the same time or turning on our dryers. And and Grace, that actually brings up something I wanted to ask you about, and that's how Albertans responded when that grid alert went out. Um, This is Leaf Solid with the Alberta Electric System Operator. We could see in our control room an immediate drop in power demand. So it immediately fell by 100 megawatts, and then a couple minutes later, it fell another 100 megawatts. So a 200 megawatt drop, and that got us through 
what we call the, the, the hump, the max demand that we were faced, that little bit of power demand coming off allowed us to avoid rotating outages. So it was a tremendous response by Albertans. Grace, what does that tell you about Albertans? Oh, it tells me that Albertans are awesome. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it tells me that we are really aware of the effect that our actions have on systems as a whole. And it tells me that demand-side management programs and demand response programs in Alberta, if they were instituted and incentivized by our regulator, would be really beneficial. Just things that you can do to reduce your power demand. So how does that but how does that man, how does that manifest itself as a management tool? What are they doing to to make sure that they are managing demand? Yeah, so there's a lot of things. You can manually go and turn off all of your things or you can use smart devices to turn off your things for you. You can program them to turn off devices at say peak times on the grid where the grid operator knows that there's going to be a high power draw, they can make it so that you're using less power through these smart devices. Are there also incentives, though, like a a different tariff for different times of day for using those kinds of things? Yeah, I think that that would be really great in Alberta. So when we talk about solutions, I mean, one of the questions about it is about when it's when there's no sunlight, when there's no wind, how could electricity operators deal with the intermittency of wind and solar? Oh, great question. And thank you for asking that because I meant to talk about this earlier. But a real MVP in this story is our storage capacity. So Alberta has about 200 megawatts of storage, which is not that much, honestly, but it's not nothing. And even though it was so small, it was able to buy us some time. So Basically, because of our storage capacity and the ease at which you can deploy it, we were able to stave off a grid alert for a few more hours. So storage also is going to be readily deployable when you need it. So we really need a lot more storage on our grid to help make it more reliable. Grace, I just wonder, after everything that happened on Saturday, January the 13th, what do you think are the main lessons that Alberta learned both for people living there and the regulator? I think that there are three major lessons that we learned. One, battery storage is really helpful. It's easily deployable and it helped us stave off a grid alert for a little longer when we needed more power. We were able to deploy the storage resources that we had. Two, demand-side management measures really helped us reduce our power demand. And also, our transmission inner tie, so our connection with Saskatchewan, was able to help us import electricity when we really needed it to help us not have a blackout, which was very important. Grace Brown, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, in the middle of the cold snap, Mark Vevoda decided to try a little experiment. It is freezing cold out from the garage. It started off at minus two, but uh, it's like minus 20 something out there. 
And that is from a video that Mark shot of himself. He was driving in northern BC from Prince George to McBride in an electric vehicle, a Tesla to be exact. And the one-way trip is about 220 kilometers. It was minus 24 Celsius outside, and Mark attempted the trip on a single charge. So, Mark, how did it go? Yeah, so the drive went really well. Um, I, when I plugged in the route to the uh, navigator in the car, it was telling me I'd arrived with about 5%, and I was like, oh, that sounds pretty sketchy, but, you know, I've done a lot of long-distance drives, and so I kind of knew ways I could deal with that if, if I was getting close to that buffer. But in the end, I arrived at 25%, so it went really well. Let's talk more about the trip, but first I think you should let our listeners know who you are. Sure. So my name is Mark Vivoda, and I'm the Vice President of the Prince George Electric Vehicle Association here in town. Mark, welcome to What on Earth. Thanks. So why did you attempt this trip? You were trying to prove something, I guess. Yeah, um, I get the question a lot from people, uh, especially when you get these extreme temperatures. You know, how does that electric vehicle handle in the cold? And I thought, well, you know, I can do this test. And I've kind of done similar things like this, but maybe not this extreme. So uh, went ahead and did this so I could put it to bed once and for all and have that reference data. Were you worried? (laughs) You know, maybe a little bit, but overall, uh, here's the key thing. I have put most of my fears away just by trying out the car and testing it to its limits. When people ask, you know, up in the north, does it handle there? I have proof that it does. So for those unfamiliar with northern BC, is is the EV infrastructure there actually sufficient for long road trips? When I first went to drive home from Vancouver in 2020, there were no Tesla superchargers uh, as soon as you left Hope, BC. So going up that northern route, um, it was... It was a bit nerve-wracking. It was probably the second time in my life I'd driven an electric car. It was in January, end of January, so I was nervous. There was just enough sort of BC Hydro Ministry of Transport stations to make it home that day. Okay, for the northern BC part, that's not always ideal for what you want to be doing. Yeah, so I would say since then it's changed. Like now you can get, you can go out west to Rupert, you can go out east to Calgary, you can go Vancouver's no problem. Going north, that's pretty sketchy still. Okay. So EVs, just like gas cars, they lose range in cold weather. What preparations did you make ahead of time to to, to do your best to make sure the EV could make the trip? Yes. Um, so I educated myself. Uh, number one, you want to plug in that car ABC. Always be charging, right? So have your car plugged in. Car smart enough to know when to charge, when not to. I preconditioned the cabin heat and the battery temperature before I left on my trip. So you get optimal uh, performance in your car. You know, as you drive that long distance, it'll start cooling down in the cold temperature, but you're not dealing with a stone cold vehicle right from the get-go. You know, that's one of them. Bring a spare tire. A lot of cars nowadays don't come with a spare tire. I mean, do you really want to be stuck? Uh, You know, in this, this trip, there is no cell service in many pockets between Prince George and uh, McBride. So I actually ended up bringing my in-reach device because I'm an avid hiker in case I did have a problem. Is that like Always, a satellite phone? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An emergency device. Uh, so spare tire, you know, and the jack and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, warm clothes, all that kind of stuff. Just like any trip um, is really what you need to do. You sound very prepared, but I'm wondering, were you ever worried that you might run, just run out of juice? I've made this trip in the summer 
from Prince George to Jasper, which is just about 350 kilometers in the single charge. And as long as you know what you're doing, like you adjust your speed, you maybe turn down the heat, there's different things you can do. And once you've built up the confidence, honestly, a trip like this, I wasn't that concerned. I brought my son with me, so. (laughs) Well, that says something. But I understand you also own a gas truck. How is that doing in this weather? Last two years, during these cold snaps, um, none of my gasoline vehicles would start. So, you know, I made some videos about that last year and people in the comments were saying, oh yeah, well, maybe your battery was no good. Well, I got a brand new battery. And just to note, I ran that truck each day for 20 minutes to half an hour to try to keep it warm and the battery charged up. Didn't help. It didn't start. It didn't start, would not start. Now, I actually understand you weren't a fan of electric vehicles until just a few years ago. What changed your mind? One of the other things I'm involved in here, I'm a technology guy, so I help run a technology group. I I wanted to learn about EVs. In 2019, you'll see posts that I put online. I'm like, yeah, these things are no good in cold weather, et cetera, et cetera. I kind of listened to a lot of the uh, negative media stories out there. I just believe that. And uh, Doug Beckett, he's the president of the Electric Vehicle Association. So he showed me his slideshow and we had a talk and I was like, I realized after sitting down with a real person who actually had a real EV, that a lot of the concepts I had were wrong. And that the, the concepts that, that were wrong were all about things like range and being able to start, that all that sort of thing, but just didn't, didn't yeah, add Yeah, the up. range, uh, its usefulness in the North and, and all that kind of thing. He made a lot of compelling arguments and I sat down and thought about it. I'm like, You know, this makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, so you learned from him. Now it's your turn for people who wonder whether EVs are suitable in rural and cold parts of Canada. What do you hope hope they take away from your experience? I'm hoping that people will at least consider like I did. I replaced my Honda Accord with my Tesla Model 3. Um, You know, everybody doesn't have to get a Tesla. There's a lot of options out there. But I would say this, if you have a passenger car... I really don't see what the excuse is for not considering an EV. I put it to the test uh, up here in the north, and, like, what are you waiting for? That doesn't necessarily have to be a Tesla, does it? I mean, that car can be out of people's price range. Are there other EVs that fare equally well in cold temperatures? Yeah, like the Bolt EV is a very popular one that you'll see online. Um, It's one of the best value-to-price ratios. Kona's another great one. Um, Ford's got the Mach-E. Um, trucks are a brand new thing, although that, I think that'll take a little time to meet the use cases we need up here. But definitely a passenger car, to me, it's a no-brainer. Uh, the federal government is planning to phase out sales of gas-powered cars and trucks by 2035. I'm wondering what, what incentives and infrastructure upgrades do you think are needed to get more Canadians into EVs? People need to see more charging stations in those areas where they're road tripping. Because let's be honest, uh, 95% of the time you're charging at home or in your hometown. But especially on a road trip where you really don't want to get stranded far away from home, the costs are, are higher and the risks higher. We need to see more in those places. So um, that's I think that's part of that range anxiety everybody talks about is can I get from this point to this point? You know, I visit my son, I visit my relatives or whoever. I need to see more of those charging stations. Mark Vevoda, thank you so much. Happy traveling and stay warm. Thank you very much.
And if you're still wondering about how electric vehicles fare in cold climates, look no further than Norway. We live in a country far north, with long driving distances, rugged mountains and long and cold winters. Norway is larger in size than Germany, yet it's home to only five and a half million people. In other words, this is not the most likely place to succeed with a transportation revolution. Still, this is precisely what has happened. That's Christina Boo with the Norwegian EV Association giving a TEDx talk last year. She says that in 2023, nearly 80% of new car sales were electric. The uptick is largely due to tax measures. The tax on gas cars is higher than the tax on EVs. And a record amount of new fast chargers are also being built. Here she is sharing an anecdote with the CBC about driving EVs in the Norwegian winter. We just had also a few stories from the the very north of Norway where we've had degrees uh, below minus 40 the last uh, week or so. And there was uh, one guy talking to uh, one of the news agencies up there saying that, well, my car actually started, it was an electric, um, but a lot of the diesel engine cars couldn't start in that temperature. An EV will have low range in winter, in cold climate, but it doesn't mean that you can't use it. You have to plan maybe a bit differently. But if you have an extensive charging network when you drive on a longer trip, if you think about uh, what you can do when it comes to preheating and so on, it works in Norway. Well, you would have heard a lot of crazy stories right now uh, if it, it wasn't working. That is a lot of information from Christina and Mark, and I think it gives people a really good idea of of what the challenges are and the advantages are of having an EV, even in colder climes. I think about what really comes through, though, for Canada, Norway seems to be doing this, is building out that infrastructure, having more charging stations, but not just more, making sure those charging stations are resilient and they work. I have a friend who decided to drive across the country last year from Ottawa. He started out when it was still pretty wintry outside. And those first few days were pretty challenging because he couldn't find places with working chargers to make sure he would be able to progress. Smoothed out as time went on, he actually really enjoyed the journey for the most part. Um, So there you go, lots of information for you to consider. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And on today's show, we're tackling your questions about how green energy holds up in Canadian winters. We've talked about EVs and Alberta's power grid. Coming up, do heat pumps work when it's super cold? We'll hear from a listener who's trying to decide if it's the right choice for him. And then we go looking for answers. The temperature in B.C. and the prairies has plunged to a dangerous, record-breaking low. It was the coldest January 14th on record at the Edmonton International Airport at minus 45. Three layers of clothes, I guess, so 
it's too much cold this time. The polar vortex that froze Western Canada this weekend is coming east. And well, after a warm start, winter in northern Ontario is back with a vengeance. It was so cold it literally took an egg out of the fridge two to three minutes to freeze. Okay, that's making me chilly all over again. You might be wondering why it has been so cold across so much of Canada when we know the climate is warming. Let me throw these phrases at you. Polar vortex, jet stream, El Nino. They're all part of the explanation, according to our own Darius Madavi. He's CBC News science and climate specialist, and he says it begins with the warming currents that occur with El Nino. El Nino usually means the polar jet stream is further north, which locks away that Arctic air. Uh, And it's usually less wavy as well, which means less of those variations that can swing down and lock that Arctic air in place because we did have such a warm December and now such a massive cold snap. Um, And right now the jet stream is very wavy. And when it comes to climate change, there is some evidence that in a changing climate, the jet stream becomes wavier because the reason the jet stream is so strong, the polar jet stream is so strong, is because there's this really pronounced difference between the warmer air down south and that cold air that's trapped in the poles. And since the the uh, polar air is warming so much faster than uh, the poles are warming so much faster than the tropics. We see less of a difference in those temperatures, which can weaken the jet stream because there isn't as much a difference in temperature. And that means a wavier jet stream that can allow that Arctic air to move further south more often, which means there's a lot of sort of debate about this right now, but it is entirely possible. And right now, the weight of evidence seems to be that we could get a wavier jet stream and even more of these cold snaps uh, in, in the future because of climate change. Oh, goody. (laughs) Thanks, Darius. Forecasts are suggesting a return to warmer temperatures, but that doesn't mean there won't be another polar vortex pushing its way south in the weeks to come. If there's one thing What on Earth listeners love to email us about, it's heat pumps. Yes, those highly efficient systems that can heat and cool your home and can also reduce your carbon footprint. But how well they do that and how much they cost to buy and operate? Well, that depends on where you live in Canada. What on Earth listener Aurora Hamilton asked about heat pumps off the top of the show. And we heard from another listener recently who has a lot of questions. So we thought we better call him up. Hi, Tom. Hi, Laura. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm wondering if you can introduce yourself to our listeners, your name and where you are. Well, my name is Tom Rutherford and I'm in Calgary, Alberta. And I'm a member of a, an intentional community that's trying right now to improve the energy efficiency of our condo complex. And out of that came a lot of questions, and I was listening to this podcast series for information to answer some of them. Well, stay tuned. I mean, it has been extremely cold in Alberta recently. It's gotten down as low as minus 36 in Calgary. Do you try to get outside when it gets that cold, or do you just sort of hunker down at home? I have a dog that demands multiple long walks every day. <laughs> so this last week has been a bit of an, uh, a trying experience. Oh my goodness, I guess there's lots of layers involved. <laughs> Many layers. <laughs> so, so you're considering installing a heat pump. You live in this cooperative co-housing community. What do your neighbors think of the idea? Well, there's a mixture. Uh, Some people are quite interested in it. Some people think it's a lot of to-do about nothing. So we're going to be having kind of a mixture of what people choose to do and what they don't choose to do. And outside of of that community, what do you hear more generally from your fellow Albertans about heat pumps? A lot of interest, I think. There's lots of people talking about it at any rate. Uh, One of the really interesting things that I find about it is that 
There seems to be a lot of people who just say heat pumps don't work in cold climate parts of Canada, full stop. But I kind of get think that's a rallying point for climate skeptics and the oil and gas lobby, and most especially for a certain prominent politician in Alberta. But when it, so when it does come to how well heat pumps work when it gets down to minus 36 and below, I'm wondering what you're wondering about. Well, um, I guess one of the key things I'm looking at is do heat pumps heat as comfortably or more comfortably than a gas furnace does? And then, there, then there's that question of backup heating. What are your questions about that? Well, what does backup heating or supplemental heating actually mean? How much does it cost to install it? How effective is it? How much does it intrude in using it? And you also hear from some people who worry about whether heat is actually distributed well or if you get cold spots in your house when you use heat pumps, right? Yeah, although I've heard the opposite in a sense. People say it's more comfortable than the f- a normal furnace, and I have a little un- trouble understanding that. How concerned are you about the costs of installing and running a heat pump? I'm reasonably comfortable with what the costs are of installing a heat pump, but I'm not sure how that's affected by the supplemental heating. So how much does it cost when you're incorporating the cost of supplemental heating? And how much does it cost to operate it if you've got the supplemental heating involved? And of course, there are climate considerations. What are you wondering about when it comes to the carbon footprint of heat pumps in Alberta? Yeah, I mean, in Alberta, our electricity is really expensive and our grid is very dirty with lots of carbon in it. So how much am I actually benefiting by putting in a heat pump in southern Alberta uh, as opposed to using a gas furnace? Okay, well, you, you've helped us set up all the questions here and we went looking for answers to your questions. Do you want to stick around to listen to what we found out? we Will do. All right. So as you heard there, Tom has a lot of questions, and they're relevant to a lot of Canadians in colder provinces and territories. So what on earth Rachel Sanders has set out to find some answers? Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. So yeah, some of the answers to Tom's questions are complicated. So I spoke with a lot of people about them. Let's dig in. First of all, Tom said he hears a lot of people saying heat pumps don't work in colder parts of Canada, right? Yeah, we've heard that even from political leaders in colder provinces. Right, including Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. In our province, they they don't work particularly well at below minus 25. Okay, is she right? Well, there are a lot of different kinds of heat pumps, but some are specifically designed for cold climates. I spoke with Sarah Riddell. She's a clean heat researcher at Efficiency Canada. There was a study in the Yukon, actually, that found that the heat pumps in their study were still more than 100% efficient at negative 29 degrees Celsius. There's been a lot of advancements in heat pump technology recently. The best ones in the market can heat to around negative 30, but even a standard cold climate air source heat pump can heat to around negative 20. Hold up a second. What does she mean when she says more than 100% efficient? Right. Well, that is the cool thing about heat pumps. When they're working properly, they can put out more energy in the form of heat than they use in electricity. So Sarah says Natural Resources Canada and the U.S. Department of Energy have challenged manufacturers to build heat pumps that work well at colder temperatures. And she says she's seen that there are new ones that can heat reliably down to minus 31 degrees Celsius. 
Right, but it was colder than that Mm -hmm. in Alberta a few days ago. We even saw minus 50 degrees temperatures. What happens when it gets that cold? Okay, I talked to Victor Hyman about that. He's the director of a co-op of contractors who work in heating and cooling in Ontario. And he agrees that heat pump technology has gotten better over the last decade. But he points out that there's another solution for those really cold days. In environments like Edmonton, where they do have really long periods of sustained cold, having a hybrid system or a dual fuel system makes the most sense. Because when it is a sustained minus 30 for a week, then having a fossil fuel furnace for those days, that does make sense. There's no question. Okay, that that was another one of the things our listener Tom asked about backup heat or supplemental heating. Right, that's right. A hybrid system can use a gas furnace as backup, or you can have electric resistance heating, also called heat strips. And those backups can be programmed to take over from the heat pump during cold snaps. There are even thermostat companies making smart controls now that can switch between furnace and heat pump depending on which is cheaper at any given time. But Sarah Riddell at Efficiency Canada says in Canada's coldest cities, heat pumps can work without those backup systems kicking in more than 90% of the year. Okay, but, but another concern that Tom is hearing from people in Alberta is about whether the heat is actually distributed evenly uh, within your house or do you end up with cold spots? Right. So Victor Hyman said that depends on the kind of heat pump you get. Some are units that you mount on the walls of your house. If they're not well distributed, you might get hot and cold spots. But if you already have ducts in your house that your furnace pushes hot air out of, Victor says you can actually get more comfortable heat through those as long as your heat pump is the right size. Especially in very adverse climates. The heat pump has to be sized for the coldest day of the year. And it's actually not even the coldest day. We're talking about the coldest hours of the year that it gets sized for. So the result is that the whole rest of the time, which is 99% of the time, it's oversized. So just to review, Victor says if you've got the right heat pump that's the right size, you can get more consistent, comfortable heat than with a gas furnace. Okay, so you've got to make sure you've got the right heat pump and the right size. I get all that. But what about the cost of running a heat pump in a cold city, especially if you do also need that backup system with a different kind of fuel? Okay, let's hear from Jeremy Sager about that. He's a senior research engineer with Natural Resources Canada. Jeremy took a close look at the costs of heat pumps across Canada a couple of years ago and found that in colder parts of Canada, if you switch from a gas furnace to a heat pump, you might see small savings in some places. But if you're not able to cut off your gas service altogether, maybe you have a gas stove or a fireplace that you want to keep, or if you're using a gas furnace for backup heating, you'll be paying fixed fees for gas service every month. And that might mean you're paying more for your home heating than if you just stick with gas. Okay, but gas prices, they actually shift and change all the time. That's right. Yeah. And Jeremy thinks it's important to look to the future. Remember, we talked about how hybrid systems help people in cold climates get reliable heat. Jeremy thinks hybrid systems could help with affordability in cold cities in the future as well. If the carbon tax remains and gets more costly over time and natural gas prices go up, let's say, then maybe you're going to want to use your electrical heat pump more often because maybe it's going to become cheaper to run. Well, this is actually really complicated. It really is. And there's new research coming out all the time about it. Just a few months ago, the Canadian Climate Institute released a report called Heat Pumps Pay Off. 
And this report factored in the cost of air conditioning as well as heating. It looked at different kinds of houses in five different cities, Vancouver, Edmonton, Toronto, Montreal, and Halifax. It looked at different kinds of housing built in a few different years to get a broader sample. And it included the cost of buying a heat pump, available subsidies, and also the cost of running a heat pump and backup heat in all of its calculations, and found that heat pumps are the lowest cost option for heating and cooling most homes in Canada. Most homes. That's right, yes. It's the lowest cost option in most of the cities they looked at, but Alberta is different. It has relatively high electricity rates and relatively low gas prices. So in some types of housing, gas furnaces plus an air conditioner are going to be the cheapest. For example, in multi-unit residential buildings with like a central heating and air conditioning system. But Let's hear what Sarah Miller from the Canadian Climate Institute has to say about another kind of housing they looked at. These are single-family homes and townhouses in Edmonton that were built in 1940 or 1980. In Edmonton, we found that a heat pump with gas backup uh, tends to be the cheapest option, followed by gas heating and air conditioning, followed by a heat pump with electric backup. So all of those numbers include full backup systems. So that's older houses, but what about brand new houses in Edmonton? Mm, Yes, I asked about that. Sarah points out that new builds don't qualify for the federal government's Greener Homes Grant, and that grant can help subsidize the cost of buying a heat pump. Okay, well, that shows the importance of subsidies when it comes to heat pump affordability, and we also know that the Greener Homes Grant program has been so popular that the minister who's in charge of it has warned that it might run out of money soon, and the government hasn't yet said whether it will continue past the next few months. Right. So that could affect the upfront cost of a heat pump in the coming years. But for anyone who is thinking about a heat pump right now and wondering about the cost... The Canadian Climate Institute has a calculator tool that could help. You can find that by searching online for Canadian Climate Institute heat pump calculator. And they're going to add data from more cities in Canada to that calculator next month, including Calgary, where our listener Tom lives. All right. We are, as I think our listeners know, a climate solutions show. And one of Tom's big questions is whether a heat pump would reduce his carbon footprint. Right. So I talked to Jeremy Sager about that. That's the researcher with Natural Resources Canada. His research shows that unlike the rest of the country, depending where exactly you are in Alberta and compared to gas furnaces, cold climate air source heat pumps might actually increase your carbon footprint. What? Yes. Let's let Jeremy explain. It's all about where the electricity comes from that the heat pump uses, right? So if the heat pump is being powered by a coal-fired power generating stations, then the GHG emission intensity of the coal-fired power generation may be higher than the natural gas furnace that you're using in your house. Coal is a dirtier fuel to begin with. But it's a tricky one because Alberta is also decarbonizing rapidly. They're transitioning away from coal and transitioning towards wind and solar and natural gas mostly. So the picture is ever-changing. It all comes back to coal. Right. But as Jeremy says, Alberta's transitioning away from coal. There are only two coal plants left on Alberta's electricity grid, and they're set to be converted to gas, possibly later this year. Of course, gas is also an emitting fuel, but it's less emitting than coal. And so here's Jeremy Sager's take on installing a heat pump in Alberta. I think for the reason that things are going to change in the future, it's not right to say it's just an outright bad idea. 
And Laura, it's worth noting that every expert I spoke with said the same thing about heat pumps in the colder provinces. Here is Sarah Riddell talking about Efficiency Canada's research on this. With the carbon tax increasing and the clean energy regulations for 2035, if you install the heat pump now, even in Alberta or Saskatchewan, since heat pumps last 15 to 20 years, over the lifespan of the equipment, the emissions and the cost savings would still be positive. But Laura, Sarah and others also point out that heat pumps are not the only way to lower the carbon footprint of your home heating. Yeah, home efficiency upgrades, even down to things like weather stripping, as I've learned, are are important as well. Right. And here's someone else I spoke with. This is Betsy Agar with the Pembina Institute. We really strongly are encouraging deeper retrofits, more than just putting some caulking around your windows, but being really thoughtful about where you can add insulation and air sealing is really critical. There are definitely some extreme times when heat pumps will be tested, and in some areas, we'll have to have backup systems. How much they need to provide highly depends on how much heat you're wasting out of your building envelope. You want my non-expert take? Yes. I just had an audit done on my house, Mm -hmm. and it did show that very thing of how exactly where the heat was leaking from my house Mm -hmm. and how relatively easy it is to fix it. So that that was a real lesson for me. Uh, Rachel, this is such a complicated thing that everything that you needed to untangle for all of this is just something else. Yeah, and I want to end with one more interesting little piece of advice I heard that might help our listener, Tom. You heard him talk about the community he lives in. There are 18 households. They're a co-housing cooperative community. When Sarah Riddell and Jeremy Seger heard about his situation, they had another suggestion for something that could work. Here's Sarah. In colder climates, a lot of people are also looking more at ground source heat pumps they're far more efficient at colder temperatures. Now, those ground source heat pumps, they're actually using geothermal energy from underground instead of pulling heat from the air. That's right, yes. Now, drilling the borehole for a ground source heat pump is very expensive, in the tens of thousands of dollars. So there is a big upfront cost. But if Tom's neighbors were all on board, Sarah says the community could consider sharing the cost of the borehole, and then all of them could draw heat from that to power their own heat pumps. In fact, a group of neighbors in Montreal did that a couple of years ago through a cooperative organization called Celsius. So that is an interesting solution, an alternative for what is an unusual living situation. Now, all he has to do is get his neighbors on board. No problem with that. So, uh, Tom, let's go back to you. Um, You've been listening to all of this. It is complicated, but I'm wondering, did this give you any ideas for how to move forward? Well, it certainly answers a lot of the questions that I had. Um, It raises a number of other questions. And, you know, the mention of the ground source heat pump and drilling for doing that raises a whole other area for us to look at. So uh, it's it's asked as many questions as it answered in a sense, but then that's kind of what happens with these conversations. <laughs> well, it's a but, complex topic. I, so. uh, it is very complex, but I think Rachel got down to to a lot of answers about it. Do you do you think if that idea of the ground source heat pump, do you think your neighbors would be willing to to get on board with sharing the cost of that because it would be reliable for sure. Well, I think that there's a potential that they could. Um, you know, not all of our neighbors are keen on doing this. But at the same time, it would come down to what the cost is, I think, in a lot of ways. And we could get some information on that and make an intelligent decision. So I'm optimistic. 
Well, you are certainly welcome to share this conversation <laughs> with them. I just wanted to jump in, Tom. I'm still here. I just wanted to jump in with one extra little bit of information about ground mm-hmm. source heat pumps. And that is Sarah Riddell, who told me about ground source heat pumps, said that the borehole will last between 50 and 100 years. And so it's a really, it's a long-term investment, right? They last a really long time. And I wonder whether or not that might also help uh, in the calculations when it comes to ground source heat pumps. <laughs> There you go. Well, good, to, good to know. <laughs> Rachel's your go-to person. <laughs> I mean, you're, you are going to need to replace your gas-fired heating system soon, and you've got an energy auditor looking at your situation to advise on what might be best. So where do things stand for you right now? Well, right at the moment, we're looking at individual furnace rooms and replacing hot water tanks and furnaces that are at at end of life. So, um, you know, we're working on that process now. But the bigger question of heat pumps and sealing and insulating are still to come for us. So we have work to do. Okay. And and so uh, the temperature's warmed up there a bit, right? Am I right about that? (laughs) Indeed, it's a balmy minus 15 today. Well, then that means it's time to take the pooch out for a walk, right? (laughs) You got it. (laughs) Okay, Tom Rutherford, thank you so much. Thank you. I've appreciated this and I've appreciated the answers. We have time now for a few more climate stories in the news this week. A new study suggests Canada hasn't been doing a good job of reporting emissions from the forestry sector. And it says that could lead to policies that are out of step with the nation's climate goals. The peer-reviewed research found that greenhouse gas emissions between 2005 and 2021 were on par with emissions from the agriculture sector. But Canada's official inventory report shows the forest industry as a carbon sink. Part of the discrepancy, according to the authors, is that the government doesn't count emissions from things like wildfire or infestations of insects. A group of young Canadians was back in court to argue that Ontario is violating their charter rights by reducing the province's 2030 target for cutting emissions. The young plaintiffs lost at the Ontario Superior Court but they were back before a panel of judges to argue an appeal of that ruling. Sophia Mather says it was important for her to be present for the arguments. We're here representing the future of Ontario and everyone here that uh, is going to be affected and is being affected by climate change. The appeal court's ruling isn't expected for several months. An international group of scientists is finalizing a report on whether drought in the Amazon River Basin can be linked to climate change. World Weather Attribution says river levels are reported to be at their lowest levels in 120 years. And it says that affects millions of people who rely on the waterways for transport, food and income. It also disrupts ecosystems, trade and energy production. The study looks at the influence of climate change and El Nino from July to December of last year. And here's an update to a story we brought you a few months ago. In October, we heard from a man in Whistler named Eddie Dearden. He told us about his campaign for BC municipalities to adopt the term fossil gas in place of the term natural gas. That's because he believes the term natural gas doesn't make clear that it is actually a fossil fuel. If people can just easily see what a fossil carbon product is, at least they can make a choice. You know, it's like if you didn't label fat or you didn't label sugar on food products, then you have no idea if what you're eating is horrible for your health. 
it's the exact same principle. We just need to get people informed of the fossils in their life. We've now heard that at least one BC municipality has decided to make that change in language. The council in the village of Pemberton says when addressing issues related to natural gas, it will use the term fossil gas in recognition of its impact on climate change. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. I want to tell you about a story we're working on for a future show. What on Earth's Indigenous Climate Solutions columnist Melina Labukan Massimo will be back with us. She'll bring us a success story about wind power on the Gaspé Peninsula in eastern Quebec. It's the story of three Mi'kmaq communities that work together to develop a wind farm that has brought clean energy to thousands of homes. But that's not all. It's also brought jobs. I specifically met two incredible Mi'kmaq wind farm technicians who were trained to operate and maintain the wind turbines throughout their territory. You could just see the pride in their faces when they talked to me about the project. You could tell that they knew everything that they were doing while we were there. We actually were, were there in the community. And then we drove all the way out to the one of the wind turbines that needed to have operation and maintenance. And so they talked to me through it and they just, you could tell that they were, they were now experts in the field. They knew how to take care of this huge wind turbine. We all we went all the way to the top and you could see their territory. It just like for me to be, I wish I, you know what, I was just so happy for them and proud of them because I just wanted to see more community members across the country have such pride in their faces. It is an inspiring story and the communities were recently awarded the right to expand that wind farm to bring even more clean energy to their territory. And we're going to hear all about that on a future episode of What on Earth. Remember, you can listen to all our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. Thanks for the five stars, Dr. Mags. You left us a note saying you're making your way through all our podcasts. And I love hearing that because we just have so many interesting shows. Just keep on scrolling. And if you find one you really love, the best way to help us is to share our podcast with a friend. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Danielle Piper, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch, and thanks this week to Allison Dempster in Calgary. And a special shout-out to all the listeners whose great ideas helped shape this show. I hope we answered at least some of your questions. Well, I hope so, too. So thank you for doing the show. All right, then. Bye. Bye. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.